guys can all laugh at Pastor Eric's really funny joke here. This is so clever. I don't know how he figured out how to make such great jokes. So let's all be impressed with Pastor Eric. Yay, Pastor Eric. Anyway, um, good morning. <laughs> good morning. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as Pastor Eric mentioned, we are beginning a short three-week series where we will be unpacking the mission at Redeemer. At Redeemer Fellowship, we exist to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. And this morning, we're going to focus on the portion, the first portion, sharing together in the life of Christ. Let me pray first, and then we will jump in. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the, the beauty of your word, the wonder of your gospel, Father. And I pray that as we look into these things this morning, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, convict us of sin, draw us near to yourself, Lord. Make us more and more like your son, Jesus. Conform us to his image, Lord God, that we might be, um, that we might be ambassadors, representatives for him here on earth, Lord. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So before we jump into our text, I wanted to talk specifically just about mission statements in general, right? Like what's the point of a mission statement? Why do people, companies, organizations, churches have mission statements? Right? That's a good question, I think. And, and, and one thing is that a mission statement declares what and who we are. It encompasses our values. It declares what we are doing or attempting to do as a community of faith. One author says it like this, that a good mission statement unites people around a common purpose. So there's a couple of mission statements I want to just read to give you an example. For instance, one mission statement goes like this, to connect the world's professionals to make them more product productive and successful. Who thinks they know what that mission statement's from? LinkedIn. To give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Any thoughts? It's Facebook, and, and they're doing that so well, right? We're all so connected. Um, to give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. It's Twitter. You were wrong. <laughs> to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful as long as it goes in with your particular search habits. Google, I added that part at the end. Um, to refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. That's Coca-Cola. I thought that was interesting. That's Coca-Cola. Um, and we save people money so they can live better. Walmart. Amen. Walmart. Our common purpose here at Redeemer Fellowship is to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. In other words, Redeemer exists to participate, it's a really important word, to participate in the heavenly mission of God, which is both vertical and horizontal and nature. This means that every single thing we do as a church, every ministry we engage in, every dollar we spend, every Bible study and sermon we put forth will be filtered through this lens. And the beauty of this lens is that it's not something we made up. Like, we weren't all sitting around one, one day and thinking, like, man, how can we just be, like, a hip, cool church and come up with some really, like, 
swift sort of clever way of articulating something. It's like, no, we just looked at the Bible and it was actually Daniel who kind of came up with the language. And it's so cool because this entire concept of sharing together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor is found from beginning to end throughout the entire 66 books of our Bibles. It is the very purpose of the people of God. And it started back with Adam and Noah, who were both commanded to do what? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And the interesting thing about those two stories of Adam and Noah is that right before they're commanded to fill the earth and multiply and subdue the earth, right before that command, what's discussed is the nature of of humanity, that they are image bearers of God, that they are the very representation of God on earth. And so basically the command to be fruitful and multiply is in that context, and as we move into the New Testament era of the church, is that the people of God, the very image of God, would be multiplied throughout the earth. Why? So that people might look at the people of God, so that others might peer in on this project and catch a glimpse of what God is like. And catch a glimpse of what God is like. And the nature of image bearing is that it's both relational in the sense that it's face-to-face -face relationship with God. And it's also missional in the sense that it goes outward. So it's relational and missional. It's a love toward God that overflows into the world. It's a love toward God that overflows into the world. And we also see this in the story of Abraham, right? Abraham was given, was given a promise that his seed would, would outnumber the sands of the sea, that would outnumber the stars of the sky, and that his people would be what? A blessing to all the nations. A blessing to all the nations. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what do we mean by blessing? And basically what is getting at what... what what the scriptures are getting at there is that the saving presence of God is going to be manifested throughout all of creation. That's what we're talking about. When we're dealing with being fruitful and multiplying and we're dealing with Abraham's seed being a blessing to all the nations, it is that so the saving presence of Jesus would be manifested throughout all of creation. Which brings us to our text in Luke chapter 10. And it goes like this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I just want to look at this first section really quickly. It starts out, and behold. How many of you guys walk around saying, hey, behold? Right, that's not typically our vernacular. And basically what the New Testament's getting at, what Luke is getting at as he pens those words, he's saying, pay attention, everybody. This is important. This is key. Listen. He says, and behold, look, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So on the surface, this doesn't seem like too big of a deal, right? He's asking an innocent question. In fact, this is the kind of question that many of us in this room would get really excited about if someone were to come up to us and say, what can I do to inherit eternal life? But see, Jesus is smarter than that. And in fact, Luke articulates this story in such a way to give us a hint as to what's actually going on here. Notice the language. And behold, look, a lawyer stood up to what? Put him to the test. To put him to the test. And this is super int intentional language here. 
In fact, the only other time Luke uses this language is when Jesus is in the wilderness and he responds to Satan's temptation by saying, you shall not test the Lord your God. He speaks to Satan and says, you shall not test the Lord your God. And now Luke picks up on that language and presents it to describe this particular lawyer who is what? Testing the Lord his God. In fact, one, you, one thing you can possibly sort of kind of pull out of this text is that this particular individual, this lawyer, is participating in someone else's story. He's sharing in the life of someone else's story, namely the story of Satan himself. He's sharing in a different story. See, the thing is about sharing together in the life of Christ is that we're all sharing together in some story. Everyone is participating in a story, in some sort of drama, in some sort of truth or pseudo-truth about the world. And what Jesus is getting at and what the scriptures are getting at is that you got two options. You could either share in my story of redemption, you could be a part of what I'm trying to do in this world, or you can participate in this other story which leads to certain death. We have options. And he says, and behold, a lawyer stood and put him to the test, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is great. He's like, you tell me, bro. Right? You're smart. You're a lawyer. In other words, you know the law of Moses. What is a lawyer in, in New Testament context, in, in biblical context? It's someone who basically is like the watchdogs for Israel. They're like looking out to make sure everyone is keeping in check, knowing exactly what they're supposed to believe, how they're supposed to live it out. And so Jesus is like, man, you, you know, tell me. What's the right answer? Because Jesus knows that he's being put to the test. And so what does he respond? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Amen, hallelujah, but I don't think we should be amening what the lawyer is doing here. Because what the lawyer is doing is that, yeah, he's reciting the law. And he's doing it right. In fact, what is he reciting? He's reciting two passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. He's reciting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Deuteronomy 6 is what we refer to as the Shema. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he quotes a verse from Leviticus 19. But to give you context, I'll start from the beginning of the chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. To all the congregation of the people of Israel. And say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then he goes on into a series of commands given to all the congregation of Israel under the umbrella of this is what holiness looks like. And then he says this, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So to whom are these commands given? To all the congregation of Israel. To all the congregation of Israel. To all the people of God. And this is massively important because oftentimes we read the scripture through a very individualistic lens thinking that, like, this is for me and me alone. And, and, and make no bones about it, salvation is personal. 
and our walks with Jesus are personal, but they are part of a bigger story. They're part of the story of God's people. We are being brought into the community of faith, into the covenant people. And when the commands are given to the church, when the commands are given to Israel, they're given to a people. They're given to a people. You shall love the... the you shall love your neighbor as yourself is a command that's not so much individualized, but it's given to all of God's people. So when we think of this concept of sharing together in the life of Christ, it's something that we do with one another. It's something that we do with one another. I mention often this, this, this doctrine of union with Christ. You've heard me talk about this before. And when we bend our knee to Jesus, when we put our faith and trust in him, when we repent of sin, we're brought into union with Christ. But not only are we brought into union with Christ, we are unified with the entire body of Christ. So much so that we become family. We become brothers and sisters. The language used throughout the New Testament to describe the church is language that describes a family. That describes what it means to be a part of the community of faith is to be a part of the family of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters. And way too often we individualize it. And scripture is constantly telling us it's, it's, an, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about us and Jesus in union together, bringing, bringing about the purposes of God on earth. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So, so he answers the question, right? The lawyer answers the question by quoting the Shema and quoting Leviticus 19, and he's right. He's accurate, but he doesn't really give an interpretation of that. And in fact, we kind of can read between the lines and know what the interpretation is. Because what does Jesus ask? He says, he said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? How do you make sense of this thing? And we could see how he makes sense of it. Because he's putting Jesus to the test. So we see that the sense he is making of it is that he's using it as bullets to kind of, kind of shape his own idea or to beat whomever his opponent is. He's not fully wrapping his mind around the true calling that was placed upon the life of Israel. And in fact, when Jesus entered into the story, much of Israel was not fully wrapping their minds around what their actual calling was. And if we read through the Old Testament, we know often that Israel does not fully understand their calling. They're always missing the point. In fact, N.T. Wright says it like this, and I have a slide for this. He says, what lies at the heart of the confrontation with the lawyer is a clash between two quite different visions of what it means to be Israel, God's people. I want to read that again. What lies at the heart of the confrontation with the lawyer is a clash between two quite different visions of what it means to be Israel, what it means to be the people of God. The lawyer doesn't get it. In fact, we see throughout the Old Testament that Adam didn't get it, that Noah didn't get it. We see also that, that the kings of Israel didn't fully get it. Even David, who is said to have a, would be a man after God's own heart, he didn't fully get it. Solomon 
in all of his glory, right? He was described as one of the most, like, the richest people who ever existed on the face of the earth. Had all wisdom, and he ends his kingship in sin. Why? Because Israel didn't get it. But there was one who got it. See, the life of Christ, as he enters into creation, as he enters into the story of the world, he embodies the very nature of Israel. Jesus Christ embodies Israel. In Hosea, it says this, chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And Matthew in his gospel picks up on this language and he says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And in Matthew 4, in the wilderness wanderings, we see a lot of that language picked up about Israel now being embodied by the person of Christ. Because he's fulfilling and picking up where Israel failed and left off. So here, finally, finally, the people or the person of God is fulfilling that calling to be fruitful and multiply. In a sense, he's gathering his disciples. And he fulfills that calling to be a blessing to all the nations because what we see in the life of Christ, what we see throughout the New Testament is no longer is this just a Jewish thing, but now all the nations of the earth are being folded into this story. See, we are called to share together in the life of Christ. And the mission given to Israel was fulfilled in Christ. And we, as the people of God, when we submit ourselves to Christ, we're brought into union with him. And therefore now, the commands given to him are to be embodied by the church. They're to be embodied by the church. And whatever our theological proclivities are, um, all of us who confess Jesus as Lord is sharing in this life. All of us are, regardless of theological distinctions. And so, how do I, I was thinking, I was actually, I went for a walk this week in the park across the street because it's a great spot to just think. And, I'm, and I'm, I was trying to think of how might we illustrate this idea of sharing together in the life of Christ. And, and what came to mind is this concept of method acting. And, and I was thinking, like, what does it mean to participate? It means to play a role. It means that we, as the people of God, are to play the part of Jesus here on earth. And, and to quote from the New Yorker, I have a, a quote there that describes method acting. It says this, it says, The effort to conceive a character as a filled-out person with a lifetime of backstory and biographical details becomes a submergence into another life. A submergence into another life. So this is method acting. This is the kind of acting where people basically pretend to be whatever character they're playing in that movie. And, and some of it kind of goes weird. If you, like, look up online, you could see people that have done this. People like um, Marlon Brando, someone who did this. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is someone who did this. In fact, Daniel Day-Lewis, who played Lincoln in the movie Lincoln, basically wouldn't take phone calls in his regular voice. He wouldn't text in, comp like, modern English. He was pretending to be Abraham Lincoln. Like, it was, it's wild, right? This is what people do. But if you watch the movie, man, what a performance. Right? Like, you can't tell the difference. One writer speaks of Marlon Brando, 
as I said, a classic example of method acting, as one who revolutionized American acting because he didn't seem to be performing in the sense that he wasn't putting something on as much as he was being. He wasn't putting something on as much as he was being. He became the actor. He became the character, excuse me. So basically what happens in this sort of acting is that the line between actor and character becomes so blurred that we actually forget where one ends and the other one begins. We forget. Like, we just get so wrapped up into whatever it is we're watching on the screen. And how many of you experience this where you're just, like, watching and you forget you're watching an actor? And it's just like, man, like, I feel like I'm right there in this story because the acting is that good. They're embodying that person for us. It's good acting. It's really good acting. And, and this was the closest thing I can think of that, help, that might help us to understand what it means for us as Redeemer Fellowship to share together in the life of Christ. That our identity would be so wrapped up in the life of Christ that the line between who we are in Christ and God Almighty himself becomes so blurred that others are caught up into this story and want to give their lives over to Jesus. Now, I want to I make something very clear. This does not mean that we become God. Because that's, no, that's important that we understand that. The creator-creature distinction is a real thing, and we need to understand that and wrap our minds around that. We are not God. Rather, our union with Christ makes us representatives of that person and work here on earth. See, the life of the church reflects the life of Christ, and it is the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of God's people that will provide the world with a picture of who God is. That's important, right? Because when the people of God misrepresent God, then the world has a distorted view of God. When the people of God misrepresent God, the world has a distorted view of God. But man, when we are sharing together in the life of Christ, when we are loving one another, when we are bearing one another's burdens, when we are caring for the poor, the sick, the needy, the broken, the marginalized, when we are entering into the suffering of others, when we are taking that suffering and putting it upon ourselves, and we are allowing others' messes to get on us, what we are showing the world is that that's what God is like. That's the person we follow. That is Jesus because that is who Jesus is, right? When we read throughout the New Testament, who do we see? We see a man who enters into some of the most difficult situations. He's the one who touches the leper when no one would even go near the leper. He's the one who cares for the sick. He's the one who ultimately enters into death. Death on a cross. The cross was reserved for rebels, for insurrectionists, for the most hardened of criminals. And that's the death that Jesus died. To identify with the most lowly that exists on this planet. And you know what he says to us? Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Play that part. Live the life of that character so intimately so that as people are looking at us, they're like, wait a second, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
Eric Bergstrom talked last week about the confusion of the Christian life in the sense that as we live our lives faithfully following Jesus, as we're giving of ourselves in ways that make no sense to the world watching in on us, they're confused, they're asking questions, why are you doing that? Why would you give up so much for whomever? Why? And then what do we get? We get an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is within us. See, the gospel, as we live it out together as a church, as Redeemer Fellowship marches forward, our call is to proclaim the good news of Jesus and to live out the good news of Jesus. It's a both-and calling. It's a both-and calling. And we have opportunities to do that. We have opportunities to give of ourselves. And I think of what it means to give of ourselves. I always think of like what it means to give and, and how the Bible talks about how it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I think the best way we see that is when those of us who are parents in this room, when we give a gift to our child. When we give a gift to our child. There was one gift we gave on Christmas this past year. And literally my son was screaming on his back like this. Like, literally on his back, like, I was worried about him. I thought maybe, like, he caught something. But, man, there's something that when you give to those you love, it does something to you, right? There's a joy that we experience. And so I want us to, to not get confused, right? Because when we share in the life of Christ, it is certainly a cross-shaped life. It is a bearing of burdens. It is a life marked by suffering. But it is also a resurrection-shaped life. It's a life that also shares in the life of Jesus because he's risen and he's seated in Ephesians, which we're going to be preaching through in the next few months. It talks about how we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And so not only are we sharing in the life of Christ by embodying his suffering, we're sharing in the life of Christ by embodying his resurrection. And the truth of the matter is, is that we, as we sit here right now in Tom's River on North Bay Avenue, we are also 100% seated in the heavenly places, in glory. This is the story of the scriptures. This is God's story. This is the reality of the world. And that's where the joy is. The joy is knowing, one, where we are and when our true reality will fully be revealed to us. And we live in light of that reality. And that's why it doesn't make sense to the world around us because they don't know about that reality. Or at least they don't believe in that reality. And they have not been, been captured by that reality. Because the truth of the world is that there are those who are participating in another story. And they're dead in their sins and trespasses. Which we all once were. Which we all once were. But God in his grace raised us up to new life. Together with Christ. Seated together with Christ. It's massively important as we talk through our mission statement here at Redeemer. This is who we are. This is what God is making us into. He's conforming us to the image of his son. The one true image bearer that fulfilled all of the image bearing requirements. Who fulfilled all of the requirements placed upon Israel. And we, when we submit to that, we are brought into union with him together. Man, that's something wonderful, right? Like that's the beauty of the gospel. 
Yes, when we bend our knee to Jesus, we are given, we are adopted, we are justified, we are sanctified, we are glorified, but we are also members of a larger body, one that stretches back to the faithful, to the beginning of time. All the faithful are wrapped up in this story. And so that's why we have a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, cheering us on. If, if you, I don't want to give away Star Wars, never mind. I don't want to give away a movie if you guys already saw it. But there's a scene in the end where all the people are cheering. Yep. It's a great scene. It really illustrates my point. I'll have to use it next year. Um, anyway. <laughs> Moving on. Um, the church father, Athanasius of Alexandria, he says it like this, shifting from Star Wars to Athanasius. He became what we are so that he might make us what he is. He became what we are so that he might make us what he is. Galatians 2.20 says it like this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Did you catch that? Listen to that again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our old self is dead. And it's now Christ who is at work in us. It's Christ. And how does Christ work in us? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. The very power of the resurrection has indwelt the people of God so that we can go forth and bear his image throughout the world. And the beauty of that relationship, that face-to-face image-bearing relationship that we have with God through Christ is that when we fail to do so, we can run to the throne and beg forgiveness. And you know what he says? you. This is the good news of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We're brought into union with him. We share together as the body of Christ in the life of Jesus himself by suffering on behalf of him and by living in light of the resurrection and joy that we have in him. It's all of it together. It's that weird confusion when, when, when someone we love, who we knew was a follower of Jesus, when they pass. It's that, it's that weird sort of like pain and joy that's all intermingled together because, because we miss that person so dearly, but we know they're with their Lord. This is the life of the Christian. This is what it means. We do. We're, we're people of sorrow because we're brought into union with a man of sorrow but we're also alive in Christ because we've been brought into union with the resurrected Jesus. And so there's that that interesting sort of in-between that we live in, that confusing in-between where it's like, yes, I'm in pain, but I also long for the joy that's set before me. Right, And even thinking about those words, right, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was not celebrating the cross. That's really important that we get that. The joy set before him was what he was reveling in, was what he was overwhelmed by. It was not the cross. He wasn't skipping to the cross. That can't be our picture. In the same way, we don't skip into suffering. We embody that suffering. It's painful. It hurts. It's horrible. But, oh, there's hope in it. 
there's hope. There's real hope in it. And the reason why there's real hope is because Jesus is risen. Because Jesus is risen. So how do we do this? Because right, Jesus responds to this kind of cheap articulation of the law that the lawyer gives. And he says, do this. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. So how do we do this? What is it that we as a people can be doing? Well, well there's some things we're already doing as a church. Andrew and the recovery ministry that meets here on Monday evenings. Hope is being extended to those who are struggling with addiction. They are carrying one another's burdens and they are getting one another's mess all over themselves. And from what I understand, I talked to Andrew this past week about it. And he was just sharing a little bit about, about the nature of it. And he said, and he said it's hard work. That, and not, it, not only that it's hard work for him, it's hard work for the people in the group because they are they're bearing one another's burdens. This is the life of Christ. To bear one another's burdens. To shoulder that pain that others are feeling. To hold others accountable. And what does that require? That requires sacrifice on our part. It's a beautiful thing that's happening. Opportunities we have, though, in our community groups. The question I want to ask, when was the last time in community group you looked around at the table with your members and shared what you were really struggling with? Maybe it's a particular sin. Maybe it's a brokenness within relationships, a marriage problem. The utter confusion on how to be a good mother or father. That's hard. Your loneliness or depression. Are we sharing these things with one another? Are we saying, I'm in pain, help me. Help me. Because this is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Remember, we're adopted into a family. We're brothers and sisters. If your brother or sister came up to you and they asked for help, you'd, you'd help them. And you would probably be honest with your brother and sister. And so what God is calling us to, as the people of God, as brothers and sisters localized here in Tom's River, to share our burdens with one another. We're going to have an opportunity at the end of this service that we have every single week, an opportunity for prayer. And I know there are people in this room hurting. I know there are. Because this life is hard. This is not an easy life that we're living. And right here on Sunday mornings, we have an opportunity to share together in the life of Christ by humbling ourselves and asking our brothers and sisters to lay hands on us and pray for us. Because, man, we need it. We so desperately need that. Dan and Pam Bozak are going to be available to pray in the back. Debbie Bergstrom is going to be available to pray in the back. The elders and, and their wives are going to be available to pray up front. There's opportunity to be prayed for. And man, we can't diminish the meaning of that, the power of that. The fact that someone, our brother, our sister, lays their hands on us and prays for us. Beseeching God Almighty to enter into our circumstances. Are we so hardened to think that that's not real? Man, that's real. Because if that's not real, what are we doing here? What's the purpose? We, we get to talk to God. And we get to talk to God on behalf of one another. 
I mean, I'm, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm preaching, I'm convicting myself, like, why aren't I doing this more often? Why aren't I just spending 24 hours a day in prayer, knowing full well what that means? Some of us in this room would give anything to talk to maybe our favorite athlete, our favorite musician, our favorite poet, author, whatever, and we have the opportunity to speak to the one who created all that, and, and, and myself, I, I'm, I'm literally preaching to myself right now, because I know my prayer life is like, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's off, and, and the reality is, is, man, like, I get to talk to God, and I, I treat that as like, Channels, we, we don't really flip through channels anymore. Like some people do, but I have Netflix, whatever. But man, we, we diminish that so much. We don't recognize the power of that, the reality of that. Maybe that's the question. It's the reality. Imagine if this room was flooded with people crying out to the Lord, praying for one another after the service. Imagine if we allowed ourselves to let go of our inhibitions, our pride, our fear, and ask for that help for prayer. Imagine if we allowed ourselves to be broken by the state of this world. What if, what if it is our unbelief, mine included, maybe mine primarily, that is, present, that is preventing the Spirit of God from descending upon this place in a transformative way? What if it's our unbelief? Whose drama are we acting in? Whose script are we performing? Whose life are we seeking to embody? Our heart here at Redeemer is that we would share in the life of Christ together. And the true story of who we are, we are partakers of the divine nature, the Bible says. Do you believe that? We're seated in the heavenly places. Do you believe that? We are image bearers of God. Do you believe that? We have the power of the resurrection indwelling us. Do you believe that? We are ambassadors of Christ. Do you believe that? We are dead to sin and alive to God. Do you believe that? We are the body of Christ, the temple of the living God, the very dwelling place of God, the heavenly presence of God here on earth. Do you believe that, Redeemer Fellowship? We cannot allow ourselves to be wrapped up in false identities, false dramas, false scripts. It's not America first. It's Christ first. It's not Republican or Democrat first. It's Christ first. We are not the sum total of our bank accounts. We are not the car we drive. We are not the home we live in. We are none of these things. This is not what defines us, but rather it is the name that is above every name that defines us and unites us. And it is his mission that supersedes every single mission under the sun. Every single mission under the sun. For in Christ Jesus we are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of us have, who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For we are all one in Christ. So when we talk about sharing together in the life of Christ, we are not following the lawyer's example. That's not our goal. But rather, our goal is to follow the example of Jesus. But it's not even so much as an example. We are keeping in step with the very Spirit of God that indwells us. We're following Jesus we are loving the Father. We are loving our neighbors. And we are doing it corporately as the body of Christ localized here in Tom's River. That's what it means. That's what it means. 
We are about the person and work of Jesus. We are about getting lost in that person and work so that the life we live as the body of Christ here in Tom's River would be a life that is so enveloped by the very life of Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior. So as we come to the table this morning, we come to tangibly participate in the life of heaven. As you eat the bread and drink from the cup, reflect on the wonder and mystery of our union with Christ. And reflect on the wonder and mystery on the unity of the body of Christ that we are one body. Redeemer, let us live as the household of God, as brothers and sisters. Love God, love one another, love your neighbor. And in so doing, we get to participate in the drama of heaven, a drama that begins with suffering and ends in glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the beauty of this glorious gospel, this wonderful gospel. Father, a gospel that draws us into the very life of heaven, the very life of Christ. Father, I pray that you would move us, Lord, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us of sin, Lord, that we would recognize who you are and what we get to be a part of, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.